Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, vaccine confusion. I can reinforce once again that every single vaccine available in Canada has been approved by Health Canada as being both safe and effective. Our mixed messages about AstraZeneca causing vaccine hesitancy at a critical time and will vaccine passports be introduced in Canada for a safe reopening? We'll take that up with the Minister of Interprovincial Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc. And then, free speech? Why is this government using C-10 to crack down on the free speech rights of everyday Canadians on the internet? Is your social media content on places like TikTok and Facebook about to be regulated by the federal government? Are citizens being digitally sideswiped by the government's battle against the web giants? We have a feature interview today with the Minister of Heritage, Stephen Guibault, plus Alberta's crisis. The Emergency Management Committee of Cabinet approved a set of new public health measures to stop the spike of COVID-19 in our province. Alberta has the highest COVID rates per capita in North America. Why did the province refuse help from the military? What's needed now? The mayor of Calgary, Nad Menchie, and the mayor of the worst hit area, Wood Buffalo, Mayor Don Scott, join us with the latest. All that plus, why didn't the Prime Minister know about the nature of the complaint against Canada's top general? The Scrum takes that up. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. After months of telling Canadians the best vaccine is the first vaccine you can get, there was a sudden change of tune from some key federal vaccine experts. Individuals need to um, have an informed choice to be vaccinated with the first vaccine that's available or to wait for an mRNA vaccine. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization threw a curveball at the federal government this week, saying that Canadians with a low-risk profile can now wait to get a Pfizer or Moderna shot and maybe pass up a chance of getting the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. That left the Prime Minister and Canada's top doctor to do some vaccine damage control. The bottom line is we need to, all of us, get vaccinated as quickly as possible so we can get back to normal. The AstraZeneca vaccine deployed in the middle of a third wave has saved lives and prevented serious illnesses. At the provincial level, more mixed messages. If a vaccine is approved by Public Health Canada and approved by Dr. Russell and her team, take that shot. Ignore NASI. NASI is not overstating the facts. Uh, all our vaccines are good vaccines. The reality is that the MR vac mRNA vaccines are better vaccines. So should you really hold out for the Pfizer or Moderna shot? Or will AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson get the job done? Plus, how will the approval of Pfizer for kids 12 and up impact the vaccination effort? Let's find out. We asked the Public Health Agency of Canada. We asked uh, Health Canada and the co-chairs of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization to appear on the program today. No one was made available, but we're happy to say that the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, is here. Minister, good to have you on the program. I just want to start with vaccines. Obviously, the federal government's job is to procure vaccines for the provinces. Health Canada says all these vaccines are safe. The Prime Minister reiterated all these vaccines are safe, and the first vaccine you get is the best one. That's clearly not what the National Advisory Committee on immunization is saying they say Pfizer and Moderna are actually preferred vaccines they've advised some people to make their own decisions not to take AstraZeneca if the offer is actually there in some circumstances so let's just get it clear which is it are there preferred vaccines or should you take the first one you get 
Evan, we've said from the beginning, and we continue to say that you should take the first vaccine that your provincial public health authorities offer. The four vaccines that have been approved by Health Canada, Health Canada is the regulator. It decides what are safe and effective vaccines based on peer-reviewed scientific advice and clinical trials. They have said, and they continue to say, that those vaccines are safe for Canadians, they're effective, and any chance of some rare side effect is much less than the chance of getting severely right. ill with COVID. I get so we that. continue to say we continue to say you take the first vaccine that your provincial public health authorities offer. And I appreciate that, but I just want to show you a clip because I had the chair of NASI, the Advisory Committee on Immunization, on CTV's power play earlier this or just in late last week. And, and, and here's what Dr. Quash said, and I want you to listen to this because this has caused an enormous amount of confusion. Check this out. If, for instance, my sister was to get the, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and die of a thrombosis, when I know that it could have been prevented and that she's not in a high-risk area, I'm not sure I could live with it. Okay, so how do Canadians sort out this kind of conflicting message? Is it now incumbent on the federal government to figure out who's to get one clear message and not have basically very inconsistent messaging? Yeah, she, I heard in the clip, Evan, she said if you live in a high-risk area, so that, again, probably would be a consideration that provincial public health authorities that are the ones that set up the inoculation programs in their jurisdictions would determine. Uh, we believe Health Canada, as a globally recognized regulator, uh, their work is, is used by other regulators around the world in terms of their advice and their uh, determinations as to what's safe and effective. We believe all four vaccines that are currently available in Canada meet that test. Um, one of the challenges, Evan, is first of all, this is a group of scientists that offer advice to provincial health authorities that, that administer these vaccines. The science itself is evolving because six months ago, there were no COVID vaccines. And a well, year but, and a half ago, I, I people didn't know about coronavirus. Listen, so, I, but we're not the all epidemiologists. Is, I, I, my point is, you're right. If the science is evolving, someone says, gee, I was told to take AstraZeneca. I took it. Now, I don't know if I want the second dose because of this blood clot. I heard someone died in Alberta, New Brunswick, and uh, Quebec. I know that Health Canada says the risks of COVID are much worse, but is it finally incumbent on the federal government to say, okay, our position from public health is to listen to Health Canada, and maybe you say, sorry, NASI, you should not have that platform to do it. You can give advice on background, but not publicly, or, I, or not. What, what's your view? Our view has never been, unlike Mr. Harper, who thought you should muzzle scientists, we believe that scientists should obviously be free to talk about the work that they do. That's part of Canadians being informed. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Most scientists don't talk about their family members uh, as part of the scientific advice. I found that surprising. Uh, but at the end of the day, Evan, yeah. uh, we continue to say that the vaccines that are available in Canada, like in many other jurisdictions around the world, are safe and effective. And we think right. Canadians should take the first vaccine that they can. Let me talk about uh, vaccine passports domestically, because Quebec uh, this week is going to offer electronic proof of vaccination that you can carry on your phone, which is widely seen as the first step towards some kind of domestic passport. I know internationally that's a different issue. 
Is the federal government working with Quebec and other provinces to adopt something similar that we can finally get some guidelines on what happens for a reopening? Because frankly, nobody knows what's going to happen in the months ahead. And, and that's a very good question. Of course, we're working with provinces on this issue. Uh, the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Fury, has been saying to other premiers and to the Prime Minister for some time that it would be very important to have a common data platform that the Government of Canada, for example, could offer so that people in different provinces would be able to access vaccination records on a common platform. So obviously we continue that work with provinces. The issue of having domestic vaccine certification uh, within Canada is properly the jurisdiction of provinces and territories. We're working, for example, with the Europeans, with the Americans, on some form of international vaccine certification. It has existed already for many years. Uh, my but nephew sorry, got sorry. married in Brazil but a couple of years ago, and you needed a proof of a vaccine to get into Brazil, for example. But just, just I just got to press you. I, I know this is the jurisdiction of the provinces, but interprovincial travel also falls into uh, federal jurisdiction. Is the federal government working at least to coordinate something so there is some kind of standard on that? Well, Evan, traveling between provinces is properly not part of the federal jurisdiction. As we've seen in Atlantic Canada or in the territories, the provinces can set up robust interprovincial travel restrictions. Uh, so that, again, is in the hands of the provinces. We're not proposing to restrict the travel uh, between Canadian provinces. Premiers can decide to do that. The United States has finally joined 90 other countries at the World Trade Organization to support suspending the intellectual property or patents of vaccines in order to help low-income countries um, uh, deal with the pandemic and, and essentially create generics. Canada's been fighting this and not joining this for months and months, since last year. Why isn't Canada supporting this? I know Canada contributes to COVAX. Why is Canada the outlier on this now? Well, we've recognized, Evan, for a long time that obviously it's in Canada's interest that other countries are also able to achieve a high level of vaccination. That's certainly we're going to control COVID. We can't only control it in our country. We've seen, we've seen that. That's why we've put money into COVAX. We've put money into international organizations that provide testing capacity, uh, uh, COVID therapeutic but you could do drugs, both. for example. But but yeah, and, and we're con but we're continuing to talk with the World Trade Organization, Evan. We're talking with a number of allies. My colleague Karina Gould has been very engaged but in this. I just, I just, we'll have, I, we'll I have more to say. We'll have more to say uh, on what Canada can do. I know it's been a long time. I just got to ask you though: Is it simply because Canada is afraid that if you support suspending the patents of the big pharma vaccines, they're going to cut off Canada's supply because we're so dependent? It's just we don't want to mess with our vaccine suppliers straight up. No, that's not the case, Evan. We have binding contracts with these vaccine suppliers that have been in place. These contracts have been in place for many months. They're very robust. Um, and the countries are respecting right. their contractual obligations. We're not worried about that. All right, I got to leave it there. Dominic LeBlanc, appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's Dominic LeBlanc. Coming up, is your social media about to be regulated by the government? Is a new law a threat to free speech or just a way to make the tech giants pay their fair share? The Minister of Heritage, Stephen Guibault, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Is it a fundamental debate about your freedom of speech or just a way to make the big web giants like Google and Netflix pay their fair share for operating in Canada? 
That is what's at stake with the government's attempt to overhaul the Broadcasting Act. The controversy surrounds something called Bill C-10, the government's attempt to modernize that act. The government says the goal is just to get the web giants like Netflix and Facebook to fund or support Canadian creators and make them play by the same rules traditional radio and TV broadcasters do. But critics say no. It's overreach that the new legislation is so sloppily written that it will allow the government to regulate your social media, your user-generated content. Why is the government once again taking a hammer to Canadian free expression rights with Bill C-10? This bill is about ensuring that we are no longer putting the interests of international companies ahead of Canadian creators. So, which is it? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Heritage and Culture, Stephen Guibault. Minister, good to have you on the program. Let, let's talk about this bill. I, I know the intention is to make the web giants pay for content like any other big media company. The concern is overreach, that it's badly written, that you're hitting user-generated content in the process. Basically, you're hunting elephants using hand grenades. So let me just ask you, does the law allow the CRTC to regulate user-generated content like YouTube or Instagram? Well, it's good to be on the show, Evan. Thank you for having me. And anyone, and I know it's a bit complicated, but anyone who's taken the time to actually look at the bill will see that there's an article, Article 2.3, which clearly excludes individuals from, from, from this act. So the CRTC could not, will not regulate user-generated content. I have to tell you, I know you've said that. I've read that section. That excludes individuals, but it specifically does not exclude content. And so it still leaves the door open. That's what critics, uh, there was another exemption in there, let's just call it 4.2, that seemed to satisfy everyone. Your government took it out. This is a hugely contentious issue. If, why not just put back the exemption that seemed to satisfy everyone to make sure there is no way for people's user-generated content to be um, regulated by the government or the CRTC? Put it back in and end the controversy. Well, the first thing, first thing I'd like to say is that the CRTC has been regulating broadcasters in Canada for decades, almost five decades, and they've never intervened on content. They, they've never told CTV or CBC, oh, you can do this show, but you can't do that show. It's not what the CRTC does, and that's not what this legislation is about. But, Minister, in the law, intention of the government is irrelevant because governments change. It's the substance of the law that matters, and it's quite clear in the new legislation, it's written, this was the amendment, that the discoverability of Canadian creators or programs is going to be subjected to CRTC regulation. So I'm just going to ask you again, if, you, for example, YouTube or TikTok, if someone is, and then the, the question will be, what is a programmer? So if someone's got a million followers or 500,000 followers on YouTube and they're generating content, are they going to be subjected to Canadian content discoverability regulations? Will, and at what threshold? The discoverability is really for the platforms. So for, for, for YouTube, for TikTok, for, for Spotify. What, what we want them to do is, is to invite Canadians to see more, to watch more Canadian artists. But as you well know, I mean, when you and I go on YouTube, we can decide to watch whatever we want. And YouTube makes a lot of suggestions. That actually, about three quarters of what people watch on, on, on YouTube or listen to is from, comes, from a, comes from the algorithms of YouTube, their suggestions. So all that, all that we're asking these companies to do is, is to make it eat easily more accessible for Canadians to discover right. our, our Canadian artists, right. our Indigenous uh -huh. artists, our Francophone artists. But people will 
will be able to continue. They'll be they'll be free to, to watch what they want to watch. This no, is not but, going to change. But, but, I, but do you understand, if the CRTC is regulating discoverability of Canadian content on social media, that is regulating social media. You are now calling user-generated content programming and so it's subjective like this is the fundamental debate I, I am I, I feel like we're driving past each other here if the CRTC can put that you're regulating it you have as, as I said individuals are exempt from 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 from, the, from, from this law or will be once it once it's adopted and what what we what we want to do this law should apply to people who are broadcasters or who act like broadcasters so if 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 you're, you have you uh, YouTube uh, YouTube channels with millions of viewers and you're deriving revenues from that, then at some point the, the CRTC will be asked to put a threshold. But we're we're talking about broadcasters here. We're not talking about everyday but, citizens posting stuff on but, on their on, on their YouTube channel. It has to have a material. I mean, the criteria here. I think you're looking for it. It has to have a material impact on the Canadian economy. That's that but, that's but, what we will ask the CRTC to to look for. This but this you nail this is the nub. People who are posting things on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, they have hundreds of thousands of followers. So I, I and now you're saying okay, at some point there is a threshold and they're generating content. Of course they are. They're generating revenues. They're selling ads all over the world. That's how they make money on TikTok and YouTube. That's my question. At what point, what is the threshold that they will be subjected to CRTC regulations? You've admitted they will be. Now we're just debating when. So I ask you again, when? Well, obviously, this is why we have a body of experts like the CRTC to make those determinations. It's not up to, to politicians to, to decide that. We've deliberately decided to depoliticize this system so that governments come, come and go, but these experts are, are there and, and they will be making this, the, this determination after having consultations with organizations of different opinion on, 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 on the subject matter. You've just said that user-generated content at some point will be determined that it can be regulated by the CRTC. You used to have an exemption for all that user-generated content. Now you're saying, well, at some point, some government's going to determine it. This is why there's pushback, sir, because you've it's not, the it's, not the government. it's not the government. It's not the government that's going to make that determination, Evan. As I said, it's a, it's it's the body of experts, the CRTC. So so it's not subjected to political interference. That's why we. That's why it's not being debated. This these things are not debated uh, by politicians. We don't we don't want politicians. We want experts to be in charge of that. And now, obviously, the CRTC is is is, is an organization that's arm's length from 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 the government, but. We're, we're talking, and, and you've said it yourself, like we're talking about channels that have millions of viewers that are generating revenues all over the world. I think that most people who are watching the show will understand that this doesn't apply to them. But, but, like but clearly, the vast majority of people watching your show right now will understand that we're not talking about them. We're talking about people generating a lot of money on, on, on social media and acting like broadcasters. But sir, but I, I understand, but you won't tell me at what level they're quote, acting like a broadcaster. At what level does content become programming? I know you're not gonna be setting those thresholds, but you're giving, this law that you are trying to pass is literally giving that power to the CRTC to do it. I know you're trying to regulate 
the web giants. But as, as, as Mr. Roosevelt once said, it's difficult to make our material condition better by the best law, but it's easy enough to ruin it by a bad law. The concern is that this is a bad law that is going to make things worse and give the CRTC and open the door for over-regulation of users' content. And it does give them that power, sir, because you've admitted it today. As you know, Evan, the CRTC's powers are not absolute. If the CRTC was ever to, to do overreach, and over the years, over the, those five decades that I've talked about where CRTC has done regulations in, in Canada for broadcasters, we've made adjustments to, to ensure that what they were doing was, was, was the right thing. So we, we will continue to have this, uh, this ability. The CRTC is not going to all of a sudden take over the internet or take over the government. All right, I gotta leave it there. It's a really important and, and interesting debate, Minister. I appreciate you joining us today on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. All right, coming up next, Alberta is now the worst jurisdiction per capita for COVID in all of North America. Cases have hit all-time highs. But despite the situation, some Alberta mayors say in the hot zones, the provincial government is still not giving them the key support they need. Why not? We find out next with the mayors of Calgary and the mayor of Wood Buffalo. That's Fort Mac. Stay right here with Question Period. Alberta now holds the tragic distinction of having the highest COVID rates per capita in North America. That's forced Premier Jason Kenney to finally impose tough new restrictions. Now, if exponential growth of COVID-19 in Alberta continues, it would begin to push the outer limits of even our surged and expanded hospital capacity within weeks. School is moving online, patios and salons now closed, retail capacity has been slashed, but the one thing that has opened up is vaccine eligibility. Starting next week, everyone who is turning 12 this year and older will be eligible for vaccine. That is incredibly exciting and I urge all Albertans to book as soon as they can. So how did Alberta end up with a COVID rate more than double that of, at this point, India? Are there restrictions too little too late? And why has Alberta refused support from the federal government? Let's find out. Joining me now is the mayor of Calgary, Nad Menchi, and the mayor of Wood Buffalo, which contains Fort Mac and maybe the hardest hit area, Mayor Don Scott. Great to have both of you here. Um, I'm just going to uh, start with you, Mayor Nenshi. The situation is bad in Calgary. Um, first of all, give us a sense of how bad it is and, and, and what went wrong here. It's very bad. It's heartbreakingly bad. And... You know, it's easy, and last time we chatted, you know, I was going on about how if your house is on fire, don't complain about who installed the faulty wiring, just get out. But we do need to think a little bit about what led us here. Uh, and I think uh, what you'll see, especially with Mayor Scott, and it's great to have you, Mayor Scott, you're doing an amazing job in an incredibly tough circumstance here. But what you had happen was sometimes just bad luck. You get an outbreak, the outbreak spreads, it's very hard to control. And that has happened across the whole province. But I think it is also fair to say that the provincial government has been somewhat hesitant vis-a-vis -vis other governments to think about restrictions. They tend to be a little bit later than others do. And, you know, in this week, for example, they followed up a very good announcement, in my opinion, about restrictions with a remarkable announcement that everybody over 12 will be eligible for the vaccine starting Monday, starting tomorrow. Uh, that's the first in Canada. So when you think about all of these things together, you can criticize their response. They may well be a bit too late, 
But ultimately, what I'm focused on right now is putting the things in place that will flatten this curve and get people access to those vaccines. Yeah, Mayor Scott, in, in your uh, area, it's terrible. The Prime Minister has offered Premier Kenny assistance uh, during their Wednesday phone call. He's repeatedly offered him. The province hadn't taken him up on that. Do you think they should take federal assistance, maybe even the military? Yeah, I, I, I've been very loud and clear about that. I think that our region, and I'm not the only region, can use all the help they can get. And one thing that I've experienced throughout this pandemic, and I've been complaining about it continuously, is we have not been getting the information that I think would help local leaders like myself and Mayor Nenshi make informed decisions. And yet uh, we're left in many cases to make decisions. So what I would say is if, if they have the information that the army or anyone else would help us, then let's get that help into our communities so that we have it here mm -hmm. ready. Let's not react later when it's too late. So let's I, get the help as quickly as we can. Mayor I think Scott, it's I'm gonna just, benefit everybody. I just wanna stay with you because you and I spoke uh, last week and you said, you know, I don't even know how to fight the COVID outbreak because I don't have the data where it is, where it's spreading, what the situation is in the hospitals. That's all provincial jurisdiction. You had said that they're not sharing the data with you. My jaw kind of hit the floor when that happened. Okay, here we are talking again and I told you we'd follow up. Has the province finally shared the key data on the outbreak so maybe you could actually take the right measures in terms of vaccinations, quarantines, restrictions? Yeah, we're in exactly the same position as we always have been. I've been complaining for nearly eight months now that we're not getting the information about what's happening locally. What's driving the numbers so that we can react and do something about them? Uh, th there was a meeting set with the Alberta Health Services uh, this week, and that was canceled. We expected to get information then. Uh, the first time that I had clear numbers on how many people are in the hospital, uh, with COVID and in the ICU was this coming, or the Tuesday that just passed. That was the first time throughout this pandemic. Yeah, I'll flip back to you, Mayor Nutcher. First of all, I'm kind of gobsmacked to hear that. Um, on a provincial level, there's been a lot of mixed signals on restrictions. I know people in Jason Kenney's own party don't like it. On a federal level, there's been a lot of mixed signals on what vaccine is safe. You know, the controversy about AstraZeneca. Has that impacted, the, both of those things impacted the response, Mayor Nenshi? Uh, you know, we talked a little bit earlier this week about uh, some of the mixed messages from NASI, from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Uh, by and large, though, that's a bit of a tempest in a teapot because we're out of AstraZeneca anyway. Uh, and there is a lot of opportunity for people to get their vaccines. Uh, right now, my issue is not vaccine hesitancy. It is helping get the vaccine into people's arms. And the real key is get the restrictions in place, enforce those restrictions, uh, those insurgents who are leading these anti-mask rallies that are actually white nationalist rallies, you know, take some enforcement power against them and do everything we can to get people vaccines. This, this is about action. It's not about us trying to score political points uh, or uh, hmm. stick with your political ideology, preventing you from doing the right thing. Uh, Mayor Nenshi, Mayor Scott, uh, both of you in your province and your community, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much and, and best of luck with the fight ahead. Coming up with so much confusing messaging around vaccine safety, does this affect the vaccine rollout? Plus, where is Canada on reopening plans and maybe domestic vaccine passports? The Scrum is next. Our special guest is the Toronto Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Eileen Davila. Stay right here with Question Period. There will be sufficient vaccines in country to vaccinate 
um, earlier than initially anticipated with the first dose, all those Canadians who want to have it. Uh, it will be offered, and it's a matter of the provinces and territories executing that plan uh, smoothly. A third wave of COVID variants versus the wave of arriving vaccines. Look, so far, even with millions of vaccines arriving every week, the variants are still winning across the country. And some vaccines, like AstraZeneca, are being plagued by confusing messaging. Is the best vaccine still really the first one you can get? That's what the Prime Minister says. That's what Health Canada says. But that's not what the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has said. Last week, they warned people to use their own judgment and possibly to wait and not take the AstraZeneca and wait for a Pfizer shot. Is that the right advice? Will that cause hesitancy? And what about plans for reopening? Are vaccine passports coming? To talk about all that, the scrum is here. Uh, joining us today, of course, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier, the Globe and Mail reporter Marika Walsh is here, and our special guest today is Dr. Eileen Devilla. She's the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Toronto. Uh, great to have all of you here. Uh, Dr. Devilla, I know your city's still under uh, a lot of restrictions across that whole province. Uh, there's a growing hesitancy towards the AstraZeneca vaccine following that mixed messaging from NACI. Uh, has the Toronto Public Health seen people canceling appointments for a second shot and is there a problem with the, the national messaging on vaccines that Canadians are getting? Well, you know, we are seeing some questions for sure as we have throughout the entire vaccination rollout. Uh, this is a medical intervention fundamentally and I think it's really important that people raise their questions as they should with every medical intervention. What does this mean for me? And what are the risks and benefits associated with this particular medical intervention? In this case, we're talking about a vaccine. And when I look at the picture overall, because I'm looking at it from a public health perspective, what I see is this remarkably effective intervention that is doing exactly what we want it to do, protecting people against the ravages of COVID-19, which has completely upended our lives here in Toronto and clearly far beyond. Uh, we have seen vaccines, including the AstraZeneca vaccine, taken up uh, by countries all over the world. And the United Kingdom is probably the best example of that. Millions of people uh, getting that vaccine they have now been able to emerge from a very, very strict lockdown that is months in duration and starting to get back to life more like we knew it before COVID-19. So I would encourage people to look at those experiences, yeah. to talk to their healthcare providers and know that these uh, vaccines, albeit new, have gone through a great deal of quality check a lot of safety check, and we're actually seeing the results on the ground. Joyce, it seemed like the Prime Minister and, and the Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, they're not directly contra uh, contradicting NACI, but they're certainly doing damage control, reiterating what Dr. Davila just said, you know, the best vaccines is the first vaccine. Is there a mixed message issue? Well, because the truth is that the, the, the best vaccine is not the first vaccine you get uh, from the way beginning. Uh, there were doubts about AstraZeneca's efficacy. It was 65%. Uh, I remember those conversations that people were having as opposed to Moderna or Pfizer. Look, I'm not a scientist, but I understand percentages uh, very well. And I understand communications as well. And when you communicate to people that you got a better vaccine on the market than the one that you're offered, you're going to have doubts about it. It's, it's just a natural human instinct. 
So, you know, patronizing people and telling them the best one is the first one you'll get, or actually it's the first one you can chase after, is the re it would be the real sentence. Well, that's not good enough because we know some facts. And those are the facts. When you tell me, well, a, a certain cohort shouldn't take this vaccine, I'm going to have doubts. Uh, if you tell me that people over 55 shouldn't or people under 35 or don't give it to young people, I'm going to have doubts. It's normal. And telling me, uh, just take the first one you're going to get is, is not, is not going to do it. Uh, because it is, you know, everybody's body. So we do it for the collective. Yes, we should all get a vaccine so we can get to this herd immunity. On the other hand, we each only have one body. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. this is, go ahead, Dr. Davila. I think you know. I, I think it's really important that we, we we focus on the fact that people should ask reasonable questions. Absolutely. But when you look at it's all context specific, and when we look at parts of Canada, uh, including Toronto, we have incredibly high rates of COVID nineteen. We are seeing hospitalizations and ICU admissions like we've never seen before, and we are seeing effective vaccine out there. It doesn't make sense to me for that vaccine not to be used when, in fact, we know that it can protect and it has protected millions of people around the world from the ravages of COVID-19, right. which has significant risk playing out in our healthcare system right now. Uh, Marika, just jump in there because I know Canada is expecting 650,000 AstraZeneca shots in the coming weeks through the COVAX program. Um, and maybe the U.S. were supposed to get some. We'd ordered almost 20 million of their... Does that become uh, still an asset in, in the fight? I just want people to know we're supposed to get over 40 million vaccines by the end of June. That's the goal. Does all this confusing message jeopardize any of this goal? I think that is the challenge that we saw from the last week, that there is confusing messaging, and that's what needs to be addressed as NASI and other health officials look forward to the next steps and the next guidance on this. It's important to note that yes, AstraZeneca has a lower ability to prevent against all illness from COVID-19, but the key is that it is shown to be effective against severe illness, which means severe outcomes like hospitalization and death. The question is what happens with these blood clots and Health Canada has, has said that it is a very low risk and the UK is that example. My colleague Paul Waldy wrote about this last week that the UK has been able to get through their lightest wave in part because of yeah. AstraZeneca. And so there is data showing that AstraZeneca is a valuable vaccine to have on the market. And I think we are still continuing to see the uptake. The question is how health officials learn from last week, which was a communications disaster, and use what they learned to guide on the next steps because right. there's gonna be questions about what happens with the second dose, Will it be mixed with a different type of vaccine? And will the interval between vaccines changes as vaccine supply changes? And all of those things need to be better communicated right. than we saw last week. Dr. Villa, let me just ask you quickly about reopening. What are the thresholds for reopening? People really want to know when will Canada announce thresholds, uh, domestic vaccine passports to, to get access to things. When are we going to get actual thresholds and guidelines on that? So this is one of those very active conversations that's happening right now at public health tables and certainly at the decision-making tables. I will tell you this, this can't happen at a local level. This has to be uh, looked at and viewed from a much broader level, at the very least a regional level, if not a full-on provincial level. And I'm heartened to know that those conversations are happening. Joy, I know you want to jump in, Joyce, but it does sound like restrictions may be extended when you hear that kind of the, the timelines there. Joyce. No, understandably, and I, and I think the doctor's absolutely right. 
we are not out of the woods. The question I think you were asking is, what does it take? At which point can you give people some benchmarks? Of course it's not now. That's not the question. The question is, what, what does it take? How many cases uh, does it have to be in order for us to open? What percentage of the population has to be immunized? Just to give people, you know, if people get benchmarks, the fatigue that we all feel, even the doctor, and mainly the doctor who's been on the front line since the way beginning, if you give people benchmarks, yeah. on when we reach this point, we'll be able to do this. I think it, you give people hope. Um, and, you know, you, you, Which we you, have started to get. Right, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Marika. Yeah, last word, Marika, because I know Patty Haidu was on this program last week and she said there's no federal plans for some kind of domestic passport. But are people going to, I know Quebec's jumping in on that already. What do you think about that issue? The federal government has really left this to the provinces and territories to decide when they will set their benchmarks and what they will set them at. But on the high level, the public health agency did come out with modeling in late April that showed the level of vaccination coverage that they believe is needed in order to start loosening the restrictions. And that was around 75% of eligible adults with their first shot and about 20% with their second shot. And so that is one target to be looking for. Other health experts say that it actually needs to be higher at 90% coverage of the first shot because so far most kids haven't gotten them. However, with the news last week from Health Canada that Pfizer is now allowed for teenagers, that actually takes some of the pressure off of hesitant adults and might mean that we get there faster, get to those levels of right. vaccination faster to be able to safely open up. All right, I got to leave it there. Dr. Davila, great to have you on the program and thanks for your frontline work. I know Joyce and Marika are going to stick around. All right, when we come back, a sexual misconduct complaint in the military from three years ago continues to raise questions about who knew what when in the prime minister's office. The scrum returns next to find out the political impact of this. Our special guest, CTV pollster and president of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos, stay right here with Question Period. The prime minister, like me, learned for the first time what the complaint was, anything about the complaint, when it was reported on in the media in March of 2021. The Prime Minister said he didn't know there was an allegation of inappropriate sexual behavior against Canada's top general, General Jonathan Vance, who, by the way, has denied it to other media. Well, the Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, Katie Telford, said she didn't know either when she testified in front of the National Defence Committee on Friday. The Defence Minister also said he didn't know, he had no knowledge the complaint was of sexually inappropriate conduct. But all that directly contradicts the former military ombudsman, Gary Walburn, who joined this program last week, and he explicitly told us that he had told the defense minister on March 2018 that the complaint was about inappropriate sexual behavior. By the way, he testified to that effect twice at committee. So who's telling the truth here, and what is the political fallout of all this? To talk about that and a new pipeline controversy that could be critical this week, the Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, our Bureau Chief for CTV News, is back. Uh, the Globe Mail reporter Marika Walsh is back. And our special guest this round is CTV pollster and the President and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Uh, good to have everyone here. Nick, this military scandals obviously rock the military. Um, is this hurting the government's credibility as a feminist government? And, and if there is an election, is this a damaging situation or is it all being overwhelmed by the politics of the uh, pandemic? 
No, this is definitely a damaging situation because the government prides itself in terms of women's issues and a safe workplace. And the fact that it's hard to get a straight answer in terms of who, know, who knew what uh, makes it problematic for the Liberals because I think for average Canadians, they're probably a little surprised to hear that no one really knew the magnitude of the problem and that no one's really being accountable right now. Marika, you watched Katie Telford, Justin Trudeau's chief of staff, on Friday at committee. She said, look, uh, I never knew the nature of this, and we all did the right thing. Apparently, everybody did the right thing, but nothing actually happened. What's your big takeaway? I mean, you've got to wonder, for the average person in the Canadian forces who's watching this, looking at the highest power, highest levels of power, excuse me, in in Parliament, in Canada, in government, who apparently could do nothing. So then the question for them is, who can do something? Who can help me? And I think on the base level, that is the challenge that the government faces in trying to support and bring reassurance to people in the Canadian forces. Yes, they also have this political issue, but I think they also have a real governance issue that they're not able to say that they could do more. Joyce, all about accountability. Five years after Operation Honour, as we now know, uh, over 580 Canadian soldiers have been sexually assaulted in that period. Um, I guess who is accountable for letting things go so badly in the, in the organization? And, and what's your takeaway in all this? Well, it's interesting, you know, to Marika's point, the NDP did say, you see, this story illustrates how there was no path for complainers. Um, so it, it, it actually, in that way, it may help. Um, you know, Canadians understand what goes on. But, you know, and, and uh, Telford was interesting when she said, well, you know, uh, at the time we didn't know, I only knew in 2021 when it came out in the media that this was sexual in nature. Excuse me. They had a report by a former chief, a justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Marie Deschamps, which was a scathing report on, you know, sexual behavior in the arm forces. This was a, at the height of the Me Too movement. I, I kind of still remember that, um, you know, the Weinstein affair. So, you know, that, that, that wouldn't have dawned on absolutely anybody. And, and, and these are, you know, sort of the big brain of the government uh, usually are in the prime minister's office. So did anybody think of even asking, and even the defense minister, when the, the ombudsman handed him the complaint, he said, no, 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 I don't want to see it. So, you know, the, when they all say, well, we didn't know, I think perhaps we should add a word that maybe they didn't want to know. All right. Uh, that is going to be an issue that we're watching closely. But I, the other issue that's now emerging Nick, is pipelines. The governor of Michigan wants to shut down a key Canadian pipeline that provides critical crude oil to Ontario and Quebec from Alberta, supports thousands of refinery jobs. It's called Line 5. Part of it runs through the United States, through something called the Straits of Mackinac, which connects Lake Michigan to Lake Huron. Now, the government uh, opposes the Michigan because they say this is a dangerous pipeline, been around since the 1950s. Uh, time to cancel it. Joe Biden hasn't really supported Canada on this. How big an issue is the threat to Line 5 for Justin Trudeau, not only politically, but economically? Well, this is just another piece of bad news for the government, especially when it comes to the energy policy. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that Canada is getting squeezed because of domestic politics in the United States. Governor Whitmer is against this. She was against this when she ran for, uh, for election. And Joe Biden, probably the most progressive president that anyone has seen in a very long time, 
he will probably be aligning with the environmentalists and the governor on this, which is why we shouldn't expect any help on that front. It just means that Canada's going to probably end up being a loser on this particular issue. Yeah, Joyce, weigh in on this if you could. Uh, the governor wants to shut it down May 12th. I know that the company, Enbridge, is going to fight it in court, and they say they're not going to shut it down yet. But the politics matter. What's your read on this? Well, there will be obviously a delay on this because, you know, the courts never take five minutes to make a decision to hear a case. What is interesting is, is this will end up by being not only a Michigan, Ontario, Quebec issue, it will be a Canada, U.S. issue. I just remind you that Keystone XL was killed by Joe Biden. He's not a big fan of pipelines. Uh, he's a big ally of the governor of Michigan. Uh, they're very close, and they're very close also in ideology. Yeah, Marika, what are you watching for this week? I know, look, I spoke to the Canadian ambassador uh, to the United States. They, there's a full court press to pressure Joe Biden. I know, I know this is in court, uh, but, boy, a lot of jobs in Canada, a lot of the economy in, in Quebec and Ontario depend on this. What's your take? What are you watching for not only this week, but the politics of Line 5? I think the politics is exactly where this the rubber really hits the road for the prime minister. I think that experts have echoed what Joyce is saying, that the decision won't actually come this week, that it won't shut down this week, or at least very likely it won't. And so then this really becomes a test for the prime minister on how he can navigate the relationship with the Biden administration whether he can actually score a win on this pipeline that he wasn't able to do with Keystone. I'm not convinced that this is a done deal on that front, but I think that certainly people will start to wonder more and more what the value is for Canada of a partisan alignment between the prime minister and the president if Canada can't seem to get a win. Yeah. Pipeline, a pipeline runs through that relationship, clearly. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Um, Marika Walsh, Joyce Napier, and uh, Nick Nanos, great to have you on the program. Joyce, happy Mother's Day, and happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, including my own mom. Mom, I love you. My wife, great mom to our kids. And all of you, boy, moms need a break, so uh, I hope you get a break today. Thanks for watching. That's Question Period for this week. We're back here in seven short days, and I'll see you back on Power Play tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Take care.